Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Erica Orange is Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of The Future Hunters, one of the world's leading futurist consulting firms. She evaluates emerging social, technological, economic, political, demographic, and environmental trends and identifies the strategic implications, the so what's, if you will, of those trends for many of the most influential Fortune 500 companies, trade associations, and public sector clients. Erica's ability to identify patterns, think critically and analytically, and translate that into actionable strategies is what makes her an invaluable asset to clients. Erica frequently speaks at a wide range of global audiences about macro trends that are shaping and impacting today's landscape. She has spoken at TEDx and keynotes over a hundred conferences around the world, including across Europe, Latin America, and Asia. I got to share the stage with Erica several years ago and found her compelling, provocative, and smart. She has authored numerous articles and industry white papers on a variety of future-focused topics and has been featured in news outlets, including including NPR, Time, Inc., Yahoo, Singapore, WWD, Bloomberg, and CBS this morning. In 2020, she was named by Forbes as one of the world's 50 top female futurists. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you know that we need to understand what the future may hold and what options it may lay out for us. And to do that, we need to be thinking about the future. So we're really excited to have her on this episode in which she shares why the big opportunity of the metaverse is not all about the B2C marketing side that we tend to talk about, the number one future trend that keeps her up at night, and what competencies will be necessary in the future of AI. Ladies and gentlemen, Erica Orange. Erica, thank you so much for being here with us. It's great to see you again. I want to open up with the same question I ask everyone, just for us to get to know you a little bit personally here is, if you could complete the sentence for me, if you really know me, you know that. If you really know me, you know that I am probably a crazy cat lady. I have two big fat orange cats and they're not orange just because of my last name. (laughs) They look like Garfield and I have an actual human son, but they kind of round out my son trifecta. (laughs) Do they come before your son or after your son? Oh, those definitely before. Got it. And your son is, as I recall, something like three years old, right? Yep. He's now five. Wow. Oh, five. Awesome. Yep. Fully kindergarten. So you do so much work in strategy, particularly helping organizations think about the future. So I'm really curious to hear what your answer is here. I ask this question of everyone. I always get a different answer. What is your definition of strategy? So the thing is, when we look at where the future is going, and I always say when we really define the future, there is one big factor that we have to understand, and that is the whole notion and nature of boundaries. Everything is becoming so much more amorphous, so much more blurred. We see even the definitions of time and space starting to change. So I say all of that to basically lay the groundwork for what a definition of strategy really is. Because in this operating environment where things are going off in multiple directions and things are happening faster and faster than ever before, you cannot just have a very linear stepwise definition of strategy. And right, strategy at the heart of it is just a simple plan of action. It's getting us to a desired outcome. So when it comes 
comes to my definition of strategy, it really is less about just my personal definition of it. And it's more about what strategy has to be in order to live in this ecosystem of the future, where, again, things are going through this exponential pace of technological change. So it has to be less of just going from A to B to B to B. And it has to be rooted in imagination, reimagination, challenging our core thinking, trying to upend all that we thought we knew in order to adopt and adapt to just completely new ways of thinking. And it gets back to one really simple yet fundamental thing, which is core to what I do, which is just getting out those mental cobwebs. It's getting out all of the gunk that occupies our mind that in many ways is an asset and can make us more strategic thinkers. But at the same time, it can also be a liability because it can keep us from seeing the future for what it is. And in turn, it can cloud our thinking as to what strategies are effective and appropriate for where this future is moving. Got it. Yes. You've raised like five other questions, which I want to get to, to get into how you approach the future and helping people strategize for the future. Before I go there, though, I'd like to know, how did you get into what you're doing now? What got you interested in strategy? And I don't want to put a label on what you do. I'm going to call it futurism, but you can correct me. It most absolutely is futurism. And as I was starting my career, I didn't even know that that was a field, that that was a practice and an area of study and discipline. So we are a small shop with a big impact, but we are a family business. And as a family business, we have been doing this work for over four decades. But my mother-in-law, Edie Wiener, really carved out a niche in the space of strategic foresight. She was one of my very first mentors before she became my mother-in-law. She was my mentor at a very young age. And this is going back to my early 20s. And I remember very vividly when she told me this. She said, if you want to come into this business, you need to train your mind and your eyes for three to five years. And that is the beginning stages of strategy. You need to do two simple yet fundamental things, which is viewing what is happening on a longer term basis. If you're looking at technology or political trends or sociocultural trends, view it as a series of patterns. Get comfortable training your brain, your mind, your eyes to really start seeing how all of these things are interconnected. Play little mental games with yourself every day to look at those Venn diagrams, those overlapping circles, knowing that nothing ever operates in a silo and that everything is interrelated. But she told me then, and it is still true today, that it takes time to do so and that it really requires one simple yet fundamental thing, and that is objectivity. We have to remove our own value judgment and any preconceived notions that we have about something in order to really become a strategic thinker, because if we imbue it with any of our own heuristics or ways that we view the world, it can become clouded or tainted because it really is, again, getting to that objective way of seeing everything regardless of what is happening. So that's what I did starting in my early to mid-20s was just forcing myself to see things differently and extrapolate it out to really ask myself, what does this mean and how could this shape the world? Okay. So if you could help us visualize that either for yourself. So I think at that point, your career was in DC and then you decided to step into family business and or for the individual, like what does it look like to take the time to think about these trends and extrapolate? Yeah. So I was a psychology major in college. I was psychology and political science. And early in my career, I went down the political science route and then realized that it was actually the psychology part 
which had more of the impact, especially as I was moving into this field, because a lot of some of the very basics that I learned in Psych 101 are still so applicable to understanding human behavior, human decision making. And if we extrapolate that out, going into strategy and innovation, because again, it's all through our mindsets. And one of the things that stuck with me then and what I continue to use on almost a daily basis is that optical illusion of Rubens vase, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. If you view it one way, it's the profile of two faces. If you flip your perspective, it looks like the vase. And the point of that visual is the fact that we are trained to see one or the other. Rarely are we trained to see both. And if we only see one, we are missing a market for the other. But if we see both, we can see that two very different realities, two different markets, different sets of strategies can coexist within the same picture. Yes. Got it. So I would love to dig into just a few trends that you think are important or I would like to see if you think are important for the strategy officers that we interact with. One trend that comes up often is artificial intelligence and what are the competencies that AI implies that we as individuals should be developing or an organization. So if you could talk to a little bit about your view on AI and competencies. Absolutely. And that's such a great question because so many people now are talking about the role of automation, robotics, and artificial intelligence. Let me just say that this is a trend that has been with us for so long. It in and of itself is not new, but the conversation has been thrust through what I call the COVID accelerator because what COVID really did was it was a magnifying glass on the necessity of a lot of these technological tools and its value for the future of work, knowing that a lasting trend is going to be how we employ people and how we leverage talent very differently, knowing that distributed, hybridized, virtual, flexible work are going to define how we work in the years to come. So we know that to be true. At the same time, we see the creation of all of these new business efficiencies that are being created by AI. And this is where I pause because a lot of people will become very scared by this reality of the disintermediation of human labor. And they think of it as a robotic takeover and the fact that AI is coming for our jobs. And this is where words matter because I frame it not in terms of artificial intelligence, but rather augmented intelligence. Because it is less about us versus them, them as these smart systems, and it's more about us and them. We have to get more comfortable thinking of this as a collaborative and symbiotic relationship, which it is, because we know that it is driving more hyper-efficiency, it is driving productivity, and at the end of the day, this is just a time-based value proposition. It's freeing us up to do the higher order level thinking that really requires human cognition, and it's freeing up our time so that we don't have to get stuck in the drudgery and, frankly, doing the work that we simply do not want to do, the number crunching, the data analytics, and all of that. So what it is also really forcing us to take a deeper look at are then what are the future-proofed skills and competencies that will remain in the exclusively human-based realm now and in the years to come. So all of those things that are not going on to software. And it's why I didn't tell anybody in strategy today. You cannot focus on smart, hire around smart, or create strategies around smart because smart is going on to software because smart is linear thinking. It's rote memorization. We need to start thinking about intelligence and intelligence is really what is grounding all of these new building competencies because we have to start there. And intelligence, which is very different from smart, is the solution to a problem when you've never been faced with that problem before. It's everything that we hear about analytical and critical thinking. 
I created a framework and I call it the competency tree. It's a tree because it's very biological in nature with all of its branches and sub-branches. And I will go into the whole framework, but I will say this, the trunk of the tree has to be intelligent. That is what grounds it. And then the five core branches, which are so critical to strategy today, it's an acronym because I'm a nerd that loves a good acronym, (laughs) plant, passion and purpose, literacy, analytical and critical thinking, nimbleness and trust. And trust is a really big one here. And all of the branches and sub-branches that come off of that, like sense-making, like design and design-based thinking, like curiosity, STEM going into STEAM, and the list goes on and on, being a nimble thinker, not just lifelong learning, but lifelong forgetting, which we can dig into a little bit. But it's forcing us to pause and rethink the value, the true value in today's new ecosystem of the human and the human worker. So I can absolutely see how those five things can inform, say, my 16-year-old son who is thinking about where to go to college now. And I wish he thought about his future career as much as I did, but he's thinking. <laughs> right. But let's flip that a little bit. Like, Let's think about an organization that's building itself and its capabilities for this augmented, intelligent future. What are the implications for the organization, maybe in terms of how they recruit or train or what they look for or who they develop? I mean, you can tackle this from a variety of perspectives. The first is also understanding who is coming into the company today. That's why there has been a renewed focus on defining and redefining Gen Z and their changing values and attitudes. And those are born in 1996 or later. Just as a side note in our shop, we refer to them as cybrids, cyber hybrids. I know we have to caution people. I like it's not to evoke any sort of notion of a cyborg. As I said, I have a five-year-old son that could actually be the generation. His generation coming up behind them. But what that really means when we call them that is the fact that this is the first generation ever in history to have a truly symbiotic relationship with technology. And it goes beyond just being digital natives. And it speaks to the fact that the technology is rewiring their brains. From a longitudinal perspective, we don't quite know how this is going to play itself out. But we do know that when you take a completely different generation that has been exposed to different types of technologies and you put them into very siloed and hierarchical organizations, ones that also use outdated hiring metrics, old metrics of input versus output, which is what we need to focus on, and just a very linear view as to how to tap into new skill sets. It's like putting a square peg in a round hole. So I've always told organizations that to really think of ways to recruit and retain this younger generation, they have to reverse engineer a lot of what it is that they do and rethink things from a motivational perspective, a rewards-based perspective, a communications perspective. Otherwise, you're going to have this intergenerational cauldron effect where it's just going to be a lot of conflict, a lot of misunderstandings, and a lot of preconceived notions about this generation that don't actually hold to be true. Got it. And when you say this generation, are you talking millennials? You're talking Gen Z? Or are you talking what comes after Gen Z? I'm talking about the Gen Z. Yeah. So these are those sidereads that are 96 and later. And we tend to think of them still as kids. But I mean, they are fully in the workforce today. And look at the most recent effect that they had on the midterm elections. I mean, they are voting. They are showing up. This is a generation to be reckoned with in a lot of ways. And they have no patience for old and outdated protocols. And there's going to be a lot of foment there when it comes to the reconciliation, I think, of traditional institutional 
fundamental knowledge and the fast-tracking nature of this generation that is coming in in full force. What would you say most keeps you up at night when you're thinking about the future? So one of the things that I've been focused on a lot recently, and this is not to present a whole doom and gloom narrative here, but to be honest, I really do think about what are going to be those existential threats to humanity, not just in the years to come, but really in the nearer term. And I talked a lot about a framework I create. I call it the three T's. The three T's stand for time, truth, and trust. And the confluence of time, truth, and trust as not only the new luxuries today, but really as new currency underscores the fact that, again, it's not news to anybody that we are seeing the rapid degradation of both truth and trust. We are living in this ecosystem where we have all of these smart systems surrounding us going from all the acronyms like augmented reality and VR, virtual reality, going into extended reality and the metaverse and the internet of things and data mining and machine learning and the neural net and DAOs and NFTs and all of this stuff. This whole wild west of technology and all of them and all of the algorithms are shooting back all of these versions of reality. And we are now living in the space where we don't know who or what to trust anymore. I've long said, and this again is one of the silver linings, I think, to come out of COVID, which is the renewed focus on human centricity and the reevaluation of human to human relationships. We tend to focus a lot on technological change, and that is all well and good. There's a lot of stuff happening there. But it also, I think, forced us to pause and say, we are the ones that really matter here. And how can we create true, valued, human-to-human relationships through the lens of ethics, fairness, and integrity? And then when it comes to truth, that really is the thing that keeps me up at night because I think we are just at the precipice of NDM, mistis and malinformation. And you layer on top of that what we see happening with the fact that artificial intelligence has the ability to reshape our reality and make it seem as if someone said something that they didn't actually say. We saw what were supposed to be comical deep fakes of everyone from Trump to Tom Cruise, but it underscores, I think, a potential minefield here. And I don't have to point out the obvious ripple effect of all of this, but I do liken what we see happening to existing in a funhouse, a whole of mirrors effect, where we see all of these very different versions of reality in almost this near constant battle with each other to see what is going to gain our very momentary attention. And it used to be that we would question if what we read was true, if what we heard was true, if what we saw was true. But now I think the more frightening question that we are going to face and mask is going to be how can we ever prove that any of these things actually are true? Knowing that we are seeing the coming together of what is real and fake and true and false. And it is creating an ecosystem where it is getting increasingly hard to navigate. Companies, organizations, brands, NGOs, public and private sector alike are going to struggle with getting on top of this from a risk and risk management perspective alongside a reputation and a reputation management perspective. Some of the things that really are going to bubble up that will be more critical than ever before will be authenticity, transparency, and the biggest thing today, which is honesty. Honesty is the one thing that I think can cut through a lot of this. 
Oh my gosh. I've got so many questions about like, where's the metaphors going? What is the future of branding? What are the future generational trends? But I know you've got a lot of people to talk to and we've reached the top of our time with you. Let's save the metaverse for another day. I would love to dig in there with you. Oh my <laughs> gosh. We should do a session just on the metaverse. I'm so curious what you think about that and how that unfolds. Just as an aside, if you want to do something on this, I've been framing it recently where I haven't seen this really talked about anywhere else is the fact that the metaverse is fully cleaved into two. You have the consumer-centric metaverse with all the stuff that we know. And again, we can talk about from a branding perspective, work, play, gamification, fun, all the brand retail, web three stuff. The other prong of it, which I think near term is the biggest opportunity is what I put in the organizational replication bucket. That is the rise of the enterprise metaverse and digital twin. There's such opportunity there. And there's dozens and dozens of examples. What do you mean by digital twins? Can you explain that to me? Because when I think of digital twins, I think like a digital mouse that we can run experiments on to test biological treatments or something. Yes. Just like how the consumer-centric metaverse is a collection of avatars, think of the enterprise metaverse as a collection of physical objects in the economy. That's why I put it within the lens of organizational replication. I think I need a framework on this. But as an aside, it's just a virtual mirror world. It is a virtual 3D replica of everything from your manufacturing floor to your assembly line to your hiring processes. It's driving efficiency. So I use the example of BMW a lot. BMW has so many different ways to configure a car. It's like 400 different ways to configure a BMW. They put all of those different models into a digital twin so it could simulate not only how they could build them with greater efficiency, but from a people perspective, allowed them to understand if they have all of these different components and it changes on a minute to minute basis because it's all different components, how their people can most safely walk around the factory floor. What are the pathways to ensure greater safety, but also how can they drive more productivity knowing that there are probably ways that they can reconfigure some of these models differently. So then they test it and it really is on a metaverse platform. It's just that it's closed and it's organizational. And then somewhere like Seoul, South Korea is running a digital twin of their city so that they can actually see through a similar platform what they need to do to ensure better infrastructure, better transportation. And now to your point, they're running more human-based digital twins. So like Dassault Living Systems out in Europe has a digital twin of a heart. So instead of going through clinical trials and testing medications, they do it first. And I think the ton says you almost end up having multiple digital realities where you're buying things and testing things. And then however that digital reality is better than the physical reality, then you can start moving physical reality towards the digital one. That could be the cutting edge. You're creating a digital future and deciding, hey, do I want that future? And do I implement that in the physical world? Yeah. What are the opportunities to just completely transcend physical boundaries, physical ailments, and all of these things? All the new product and service opportunities that that could create. Yeah, it's strange. It's almost like we are aiming too far in the future in that technology isn't there yet. I think about like when airplanes first became possible, people thought that we were going to all have airplanes in our garages and fly around, but it was so off. I think that maybe it's just more helpful to think about what is the immediate next step, that next iteration 
iteration of the metaverse. Yeah, I was absolutely right. And that's why I say like, we're never in the business of prediction. And the reason for that is because there are always going to be second and third order consequences or something could happen completely unrelated. And it's like the butterfly effect that then throws all of those predictions completely out of whack. We also have these very sci-fi visions of what we think we need, but then it comes down to what is the actual use case? Are these things desirable? Do we have the resources to devote to it? You know, everyone was talking about driverless cars. There's like, what is the impact on the insurance industry going to be? What is the impact on even basic infrastructure? Our infrastructure in every other way is completely crumbling in this country, and then we want driverless cars? Not going to happen. I mean, it will likely at some point, but it's not there. Pay time soon. Yeah. You know, the first person even on this podcast that said this, it's not about predicting the future, but being ready for futures. How do you get companies ready for the permutations of the future? There's a visual I show at a lot of presentations, which takes that fork in the road analogy and blows it out into a street sign with like 75 arrows going off in multiple directions. And I show that visual to illustrate the point that it is not just about one future, but multiple futures and not about one reality, but multiple realities. So knowing that things are going off in multiple directions, what that means for strategy really comes down to a few simple things that are very hard to put into practice, right? It's being constantly nimble, being adaptable and being adaptive. And I talk a lot about the difference between vision and strategy. They are two different animals. Before you go there, what's the difference between adaptable and adaptive? They're kind of one and the same, but I just consider one to be more proactive and one to be more reactive. Okay. Yeah, yeah I see. That. I see. That. Yeah. But for me, so living in Rochester, New York now, I oftentimes will ask people as a cautionary tale about the one company that defined our economy for years. And so many people will come back and say the correct answer, which is Kodak. When you think of Rochester, you think of Kodak. And I mentioned Kodak so many times as a cautionary tale because they underscore that difference between vision and strategy. This was a company that was so wedded to their individual strategies. They were so wedded to how they did what they did and held it so closely to the best that they lost sight of their vision. And their vision was who and what they could have become. It's what they could have owned in the marketplace. It's what they stood for. And they abandoned that in order to preserve their strategies. I tell any company operating today to think of their strategies as parallel railroad track, where if you think of that visual, they have to simultaneously be firing off all of these different cylinders between a six to 12 month strategy, a two to three year, a three to five year, and a 10 year and beyond, and be able to hop on and off each one of those different tracks almost in real time and abandon the strategies that don't work in order to then build a new track for a different set of strategies in order to adapt to a new and ever-changing future. That becomes a tricky exercise, but that goes to what I talk about with nimble thinking, and that's that cautionary tale. If you hold what you do so close to the chest, you are going to miss all of those opportunities. So I tell any company, clearly articulate your vision, what you stand for, and then work backwards from there. Uh, that's a really helpful metaphor. I think it's so much more helpful than the core new options, the horizon one, two, three, the railroad tracks is a really helpful metaphor to think about the thinking of strategizing for the future. 
I would love to just keep talking, but we have to bring the conversation for close and we're giving the editor a lot of work to do. You have to be kind to your editors. How can people follow you and learn from you, stay connected to you? Yes. So feel free to visit our website. We have some content on there. I unfortunately do not practice what I preach. I should be putting much more online than I actually do. Feel free to go on my LinkedIn. You know, feel free to also, I did a TEDx talk on my concept of Templosion, which is the fact that big time is happening in shorter and shorter chunks. So please feel free to watch that. This was fun. We couldn't continue this for a while. Well, thank you, Erica, for exploring the future for us, thinking about that for us and coming and sharing what you glimpsed and your insights and suggestions with us here. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.